I was going to be late instead of not bring that chicken to that lady's house. I got in trouble, but I, at least I had the Chinese food. <laughs> it's important. I mean, it becomes like not an exchange. Yeah. It's much more than that. I mean, like people all over the world make film that way, but that's maybe not the best we can do. Thinking about it deeper and making it worth more, you know? All my relations. Welcome back to another episode of All My Relations. We hope you've been enjoying our live episodes that we recorded at Santa Monica College. And today we have another great conversation with Cherokee Nation director and filmmaker Britt Hensel. We talk storytelling, community, and what it means to move through these artistic spaces in a good way as a Native person. Yeah, and and Matiga and I thought this conversation and this topic was really important because it's something that plays out in both of our work in such different ways. And we're both storytellers, but in different mediums and spaces. But in both of our work, there's so much that we see extracted from community by non-native researchers, writers, filmmakers, photographers, and the relationships are just so harmful that come out of those um, extractive storytelling approaches. Mm -hmm. And so being able to talk with someone who thinks about it in a very different way um, and approaches it in a very different way, I think, is super important. Mm-hmm. And Matika, I know that's something that you think about constantly with your work. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the ethics of journalism, the way that we approach storytelling in a Western way, when we think of intellectual property or copyright law, you know, those are fundamentally at odds with our indigenous value systems in the way that we would traditionally tell stories. When I was a young person graduating from college and I had just like taken all of those classes from all non-native people, I certainly didn't go about it in a good way with my first projects as a documentary, long form photographer. You know, I, I definitely made a lot of mistakes. And it took me like a decade of reevaluating my approach and the way that I chose to share agency with my subjects, uh, the way that I chose to give stories back to community and the stories that I chose to tell in the first place have to be rooted in community value systems. I think it's really important that we create space to have these discussions because we are seeing a paradigm shift where for the first time, you know, people are um, experiencing all native writer rooms or uh, experiencing um, the opportunity to tell their own story. And it's really important that we talk about how to do that in a good way. Absolutely. So uh, we're excited to share this conversation with you, um, with Britt Hensel, and as with all of our previous episodes from this series, we're joined with live music from KP of Black Belt Eagle Scout. So we hope you enjoy. I'm so excited to have Britt Hensel with us, but 
Hello. Hi. <laughs> Britt is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation whose work largely explores environment, language, and her people's connection to land in Oklahoma and in her ancestral homelands of North Carolina, the Kuala Boundary. She has directed many documentary films, including Zibi Yajdan, Native and American, and has worked on the first and second seasons of Reservation Dogs. Woo! Her film, Udayana, What They've Been Taught, was an official selection at the Sundance Film Festival in 2022, and she was awarded the 2022 Tulsa Artist Fellowship and Fourth World Indigenous Fellowship, and she was just nominated for the Best Short Documentary Film for the IDA Awards. Hey! <laughs> Welcome, Britt! <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for that little intro. So we're talking about ethics in documentary filmmaking in this episode. I very rarely get to talk about the craft of being a photographer and a filmmaker. Uh, I often like we mentioned in the last episode, have to spend a lot of time talking about context and talking about uh, Native America and our plights and our fights and our struggles and our hopes and our dreams. And, you know, you guys have listened to the podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't ever get to talk about my favorite thing, which is the craft of telling stories. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. So thank you so much for indulging me in this conversation. So... I want to start by explaining that I've come to realize we have been trained in Western models as indigenous storytellers. And these models of storytelling are in direct conflict with our traditional belief systems and the ways that we want to be uh, in good relation as indigenous storytellers. And so I think maybe if you could just talk a little about that for you, what, what that brings up and start there. I haven't been making film for incredibly long, but um, in the time that I have, I mean, I've worked jobs where I've been taught exactly what not to do. And it's really informed my filmmaking moving forward. And um, while I'm thankful for that experience, it's, it's given me a different perspective in terms of, okay, this is how I feel good in telling a story. This is how I want people to feel when I make a story about them. I feel... I feel like I've landed on this idea that I'm the vessel that a story is supposed to move through. It's not my job to necessarily um, pull things out of people or like guide or push things. For me, I think when storytelling is done at its best or things that really resonate with me, it's when it comes from like a really free and genuine and unlimited space. The sort of the time at which it takes to tell good stories is something that is counterintuitive to you know, what most people think about you know, churning, churning stories out. Like, we got to have things told a certain way in a certain timeline, and I feel like that doesn't work for working with the Native people and Indigenous communities, at least in my personal experience. It puts pressure on people and forces things. And if you think about, like, arguably people talk about Nanook of the North being the first documentary film. I think that was, like, what, 1922? And it was a white man going into an Inuit community and... That's what I was taught at film school was the first documentary film. Mm. And that's the origins of documentary, which as a Native person listening to that is like, well, shit, you know, <laughs> like that's not at all what I want to do. And, you know, we're taught that way mm. in, in, our, in our studies. So I think it's our responsibility to not have that be the case and to make sure that 
when we are sharing stories and we are doing these things, there is a different way to approach it. And it is a responsibility. And it isn't just so simple as, well, I like this story and I know I have people in this community I can access. So let me just go and do that. It's that's just the very beginning of that. So, Mm. yeah. I love that you talk about trying to be on a Western production schedule yeah. <laughs> and then having to deal with yeah. Indian time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been an ongoing uh-huh. issue for me. Oh, for real, I was supposed to do my project 562 in three years and it took me <laughs> 10, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, I think like it, good things happen when you take your time. I mean, the films that have always resonated with me or... Um, that means something to me. There is collaboration. There's community collaboration. There's, you know, you're not my um, subject, Mm. you know? Like, I don't feel that way. I've never felt that way. I took one film class in college, and I actually failed it. But, I mean, I think that that's something that was, it gave me a leg up in a way because I didn't think I had to work within certain confines in order to tell Mm. a story or X, Y, and Z equals this, and this is how you get a product to make a good film. I I never had that. It was just sort of, what is my gut telling me? Do I trust myself about what I'm seeing here? Am I caring about people around me? Am I listening to the input that community or people whose story I'm sharing? You know, I think there has to be this massive collaboration. It isn't just something you can show up and roll cameras and be like, okay, what do you got? You know, like, you know. Yeah. Well, because, you know, in Western forms of journalism, if I click the shutter, Mm. then uh, the image belongs to me. But if I actually believe and practice these traditional teachings that I'm being taught in my community, and it's not as though there's some book that I read that's like, here's your traditional teachings. You know, you have to, uh, for me, it's like the traditional teachings happen in the longhouse. They happen at Canoe Journey. They happen in the protocols that we have in the way that we handle death. And I have to learn from those protocols and transfer that over to this thing that I'm doing in white America. So for instance, in our community, if somebody gifts me with a traditional song from Skokomish or from Suquamish, or from Nisqually, and like friends have done, like from somebody from Squally Option says, Hermitiga, you can sing this song. You know, we, we love you. We want you to carry this song. I might be able to sing it, but I can't give that song to anybody else. That song doesn't belong to me. And I don't get to sing that song with acknowledging who gifted it to me and who originally composed it and know also what the song means and how it came to them. And I have a responsibility to like do all of that when I sing that song. That's my, it's expected that I'm going to be a good caretaker of that song. So when I think about how that translates to being a storyteller and to being a documentary storyteller, when I go into somebody's community, I don't get to take their picture and then own it. I have to like send the photo back. And when I make a movie, I have to send it back to community and be like, is this okay with you? And Caitlin, who's my editor sitting right over there, will tell you that with my book that we've worked on, we had to send each of the profiles to each of the people that were in the book. And that's not something that you normally would have to do at Penguin Random House. (laughs) But if I want people to like still take my phone call (laughs) and I don't want to be berated by my aunties. Mm -hmm. Because they will. Yeah. Then I have a responsibility to send that back to community and make sure it's okay with people. And that's in direct conflict with Western forms of storytelling. 
Yeah, I mean, I was really blessed, at least with this last film that I did. I got funding from a, a, a nonprofit where it's all people of color, indigenous people. So the the confines in which, like, the structure of making the film allowed me to say, this is what I want and this is what I'm expecting. So, like, this is the crew that I'm hiring. These are the people who I want to consult with. I'm wanting them to be able to own this footage. The tribes have to be able to have this for their own personal use at some point. So, I mean, every stage of making the film, I would send, is everyone good with this? Are we okay? I went to an elder first, and we had long talks about, like, what is my job here? Like, how do I do this in a good way? Because for me, it's like, I don't own these stories. Like, I am somebody who people have taken time to teach. And um, I'm really grateful for that. And I've sat a lot and listened and been quiet and um, hoped that, you know, I could help perpetuate good things. And I continually, I'm, I never think to myself, like, oh, this is mine. This is mine to tell. Like, this is, I'm, I want to give somebody something back so that they can be really proud of it. And that, for me, is why I like documentary film, because I want to make people proud. And I want them to see themselves and be like, all right, like, she saw me, you know? And I think that that part is my responsibility. And I was talking to Tom Belt, who's the person, who's the, he narrates the film. He's a first language speaker from Rocky Ford. He lives in, in North Carolina on the Koala Boundary. He's a language teacher. And I've developed a relationship with him, and I care about him a lot. And he's taken a lot of time to share and teach me things. And so, yeah, I mean, like, there's, I feel an incredible sense of responsibility, and he keeps me in check. Everybody around me helps keep me in check. So I think that that is Indigenous film working at its finest. And in that way, because that is a good way to care about people, it's a good way to relate and to think, like, good things happen as a result of that. We were talking about a word in Cherokee that Tom was telling me, he was explaining, like, the word tohi in Cherokee, which is also a response. Like, someone said, how are you? How are you doing? You could say that word back to them, like, I'm good. But it also means, like, it's something that's correct. It's something that's sci scientific. It's the way that the river runs is tohi. It, sometimes it speeds up where it needs to. Sometimes it slows down where it needs to. It ebbs, it flows, it shifts. But that state of the river is scientific, and it's perfect that way. And it's the epitome of wellness and balance. And so it's yeah. like if we're, it's also something you can embody. It's not just a word you speak. Mm -hmm. So I think about that sometimes when I'm making things or trying to remind myself of what my responsibility is as a Cherokee person to whatever project that I'm working on, even if I am working in a non-Cherokee community. But yeah, we made a deal with everybody that after the film ran its like one year marketing course where we're sending everything out and it has to be in the public eye or publicity, like that footage will go back for the tribes to own and individuals to have and they can access that in whatever way that they want. And I thought that was important and I want it to be something that people feel good about. It's not my job to hold or to keep. Uh, so yeah. I feel so much resonance with um, Obviously, I'm not a documentary filmmaker yet, perhaps someday. Um, <laughs> but uh, as a researcher, like this is the work that I do as well. Like when you're going into communities, when you're having those conversations. And I love the way that you said that you see yourself as a vessel for the stories to move through. I think that is such a beautiful concept. And that's truly like how I try to think about my academic work as well. Like these students, these communities are telling me their stories and they're not mine. They're not for me to like make my career off of that I'm just the place for 
for them to be held for a bit, to move forward, to be put out in these publications where people can connect with them. And so I love that that carries through your work. And I'm going to like hold that as a concept because I really, really enjoy that. And you mentioned that in your kind of film history, you've done work with our nation, like with our people, um, but also with nations other than your own. And so I'm curious about that process of how do you take your values as a Cherokee person when you're going into a community that isn't your own, um, that you're having to build those relationships in a new way? Like, how does that feel different to be making a film in, in yeah. those spaces? I mean, the any time that I've ever gone into a community that wasn't mine, I was asked. Mm. But when I'd made Zibiyaj John, that was the second film. I worked with the Gun Lake Tribe, the Machipinashuish Band of Potawatomi, and they had no one was covering this pipeline spill, mm. the Enbridge pipeline in uh, Cal- in the Kalamazoo River. Nobody was talking about it, and like it made the news, the local news, but it completely devastated the river. And there were three women: uh, a mother, a daughter, and then her daughter, her small daughter, and they were just really wanting to write. They were wanting to write something, they were wanting to film it, and they were hoping somebody would care. Mm -hmm. And they were doing amazing work to revitalize the wild rice in that river and bring back the sturgeon that were there. They found my sister and I somehow, and we're just like, we need Native women to help us because we don't have anybody in our community who's doing this. So we just got on a flight and went up there. We had calls and we met. We would go up and meet them and sometimes not even talk about work, you know, just... Tell us about what's happening here. Who are you? Where do you, you know, what's, what's your life like? You know, what are the challenges you're facing or whatever it may be. But then, yeah, we kept going up there. And then it was literally us with like small cameras in canoes with them on the river. So much floating down that river that I was in my bed at the hotel, like still, like, felt like I was still bobbing around. But yeah, it was was amazing. It was amazing. I had massive waders, almost dropped the camera in the water at one point. I mean, I was still very green. Was it really buggy? It was. It was buggy. It wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. What I'm telling you, when I think about wild ricing, Mm -hmm. that's all I think of is those little worms, those bugs. I'd never had so much bugs in my hair. It was. I mean, I want to eat wild rice and like Mm -hmm. be tradish, you know? Oh, yeah. But like. Yeah, I mean, it was was so cool. But it was also just sort of like. I don't know, being out there in the water with those women all day and then just being like, okay, I, I'm not Potawatomi. I, I know the logistic parts of this story. I'm, gonna, I'm going to help bring whatever this vision forward is. And so we helped them write a script. And the film was all done from the perspective of the river. If the river had had a voice, what would she have said? Oh. And... So yeah, I mean, what did she say? She said a lot of shit. (laughs) She had a lot of good to say, a lot of good shit. But um, no, I mean, it was beautiful, and uh, so that was the that was the second film I'd done in a Potawatomi community. The first one, that was my very first film. It was called Native and American. But I became best, you know, one of the closest friends with that girl who who she was. She was one of the only young people in that community who was speaking. Potawatomi and showing up to language classes, but she didn't meet the blood quantum. Oh, wow. Mm. And she, we, they had just opened a film office, that tribe did, Forest County Potawatomi. Not to say there were not other young people there, but she was really, really present and really trying to make that a part of her life and bring her grandpa, her Mishomas, to class mm-hmm. because he was very disconnected growing up. He got put into foster care at a really young age. And, um, you know, their family's homestead is there. They're 
family's buried there and she has this massive disconnection to it because she's not a fourth. And she reached out to us. So yeah, we went up there and just like, all right, like how could we help? And ended up being like, I think the story's about you, not about you guys opening a film school. You know, would you be willing to let us share your story? And it was really hard for her. And she took a lot of flack for speaking up about that. About blood quantum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, mm. I truly didn't understand the weight of that at the time. Wow. And was just like, oh, no. You know, what did we do? But I just was with her in Cherokee, actually, not too long ago. And she was just saying how it was so hard for her at the time. But now it's given her this understanding and this confidence about herself, which is like, I am enough and I am deserving. And if I wouldn't have gone through that and had to be bold, I don't know where I would be. Like, this language is mine to learn. Like, my family's from here. I've been here my whole life, you know. This is mine, just because my blood isn't that, you know. So obviously I understand it's a very heated topic in Indian country, and everyone is entitled to their own perspectives and their feelings about it. But I did see some real value in using that. Mm. If my films can help bring people courage, that's something that I want to do. So... Those were the two experiences outside of my community. Another example of that is I'm not Eastern Band. Mm. So when I go to the Kuala Boundary, even though we're, you know, we're the same, come from the same people, we speak the same language. I mean, there's different dialects, but we all come from those mountains in Western North Carolina. We all come from the same mound, you know, as where yeah. our stories say, but it's like, I'm not Eastern Band. So I got to do my due diligence when I show up there. And I can't just be like, okay, what do you got? You know, what, what's the story here? You know, <laughs> it just takes more time, more care and wanting to do good. I don't know. So tonight, at the second night of the All My Relations Film Festival, we're going to be screening um, Brit's film Udeyona, which means um, what they've been taught. And uh, Brit, I'd love if you could just tell us the story of this short documentary. So prep us for tonight. And then I also want to hear about the choice around using the language in the title, too. Um, you had mentioned a little bit about that. So I'd love yeah. if you could tell us that story as well. Yeah, Udeyona in Cherokee... What they've been taught is like a fluffier version. Like it's also a word that can mean cycle. And that was what I was trying to, I don't know, the film to me is very circular. Mm -hmm. It's very cyclical intentionally. I mean, what we've been taught moves from elders to young people to youth. But yeah, I mean, the film is essentially like a celebration of community to me. I was given the opportunity to make this film 
as part of a, a series called the Reciprocity Project. And there was a, a group called Neotero that had this idea to have seven different films from seven different indigenous communities and each do a story about reciprocity, um, what that meant to your community. So um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I didn't really necessarily know like what the word for reciprocity in Cherokee was. So I went to Tom and I asked him and he like kind of like laughed at me because he was like, there's no one word for reciprocity. It's like, oh yeah, duh. But he was just saying like, I would say that it's not taking more than you're given and giving back what you take. Mm. Um, we have another word in Cherokee that is called gadugi, which is like, it's my favorite yeah, word. <laughs> doing things for people because and not because you're getting anything back. But so I don't know. I was like, wow, how am I going to make a film about that? You know, it's a sort of like a lofty idea. It makes sense when it's literal. But I don't know. I just went to my friends who are artists in Oklahoma and my friends who are artists in the East. And I told them my idea. And I was like, do y'all think I'm crazy? Like, do you get what I'm going for? And they were like, yeah, let's do it. So... Um, we shot in Oklahoma, we shot shot in North Carolina, and yeah, I mean, it's essentially like independent artists from these communities coming together to tell this story and to just be Cherokee, and I think taking care of one another, like perpetuating our art, perpetuating our, our language, um, and just being who we are as people, and that was what I hoped to capture on screen, and that's what I would say the film is about, so. And it's just so beautiful, like the way that it moves, like with the landscape of the homelands and like the mat there's a artist that's carving um, booger masks in it and just like seeing those as part of the storytelling yeah. as well like the in the language and hearing Tom's voice it's just such a beautiful tribute to our community and what it means to be a Cherokee person and you can watch it for free online right through the reciprocity project it's reciprocityproject.org mm-hmm At this point, we took some questions from the audience, and Dr. Keene is going to paraphrase those for you. The first question was from a film student who was asking if Britt had any advice about traveling for shoots, thinking through all of the logistics of collecting footage and collecting stories, and wanted to see uh, what she thought about all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that sticks out in my mind is just, like, why are you, why, why travel? So, like... Have have your connection to wherever you're going be, you know, done in a good way and like make sure you're not showing up surprising anybody or anything like that. I think that's, you know, it's a really important part of it. But I think in terms of just like the logistics of traveling, like it's a lot to film and travel like that. It's really time consuming, but it's just part of the process, right? Like you're just out on an adventure doing that stuff. So it connects back to like, why are you telling the story? Why do you believe you're the person right to tell that story? Mm -hmm. um, and if you have those things mapped out, I feel like the rest is just like, that's running and gunning, right? Like that's, that's why we make documentary films. But I think it's completely connected to, you know, your place in that story and, and why you believe you're the one who's supposed to be holding that responsibility in that role. So... I traveled for 10 years <laughs> taking yeah. pictures of people. Um, I lived in a, a car. I traveled out of a two-seater Honda for two oh years um, and lived in like motel sixes and on people's couches. 
Then I graduated to a truck and trailer, which I, um, you know, like exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Then I traveled in the big girl, which is a smaller RV. um, And then I got a really big RV, the bougie big girl. (laughs) And I think for me, like the mode of transportation, um, the camera you're using, the sound equipment you're using is all like second to the relationships that you're building. And, you know, I did everything wrong. Um, I didn't always show up to communities with connections because I had this goal to visit all these tribes in the United States. I remember when I went to Mashpee Wampanoag, like I knew no, I didn't know anybody in Massachusetts. I didn't know a single person, but I was going to go out to Mashpee. And um, I had drove my big girl in front of their admin building and they wouldn't let me into the admin building because I didn't have an appointment to even like try to make friends and nobody answered my email for like three months because it's Indian country and so I was like well I'm just gonna go and see if I can make some friends and I put I got went to like the drugstore and I got one of those like big green signs and a permanent marker and I wrote free fry bread on it and I made fry bread um, (laughs) in my RV and lots of people came and lined up And um, I made all kinds of friends, you know, and within like two hours, Paula had invited me over to her house and I was staying the night and I started dating one of her nephews and like it worked out, you know, it worked out real good. (laughs) You know, I stayed for a a couple of weeks, the the romance ended and I got, you know, I got great photos, met the chairman, got permission, you know, Um, but I had wanted to stay for two days in Mashpee and I, you know, I stayed a lot longer because it took that long to like make friends, to go meet the tribal council, to get permission, to photograph people. Um, I'm still friends with all of those people. Not the guy. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Some things don't work out in a good way, you know? Um, But, you know, some things do. I'm still friends with Auntie Paula. You know, she came to my wedding. You know, like, um, her kids call me Auntie. Mm. Uh, You know, like, we talk regularly. And so... You know, I think, like, being in good relationships should be the the foundation of the documentary work. And I think that that's fundamental to traveling. And also, like, there's the agenda we have. And then there's, like, what's actually happening when we get there. Mm -hmm. And we have to, like, be willing uh, to, like, realize that we're visitors and we're guests and we have to act right. We have to bring gifts and we have to, uh, you know, like don't be showing up empty handed, you know, I just, I can't reiterate that enough. I don't know how many times people have journalists have come to my house to photograph me and film me. And they showed up to my house empty handed. Like they didn't have a mama, (laughs) you know, like what's wrong with you? You don't go to somebody's house empty handed. What's like, what are you thinking? You know? So like, I think you have to like go back to like your, like your foundational teachings about manners. <laughs> and I, so like what you yeah. said is profound mm-hmm. because, you know, I know you do that. You told me a story yeah. about not showing up empty handed. Oh, yeah. I was going to be late instead of not bring that chicken <laughs> to that lady's house. <laughs> I got in trouble, but I, at least I had the Chinese food. <laughs> it's important. I mean, it becomes like not an exchange. Yeah. It's much more than that. I mean, like, People all over the world make film that way, but that's maybe not the best we can do. Thinking about it deeper and making it worth more, you know? And the next audience question was, as a Native filmmaker, what has it been like getting funding and support for your projects? In terms of Native film in general, 
uh, we're seeing like a massive spike in that. And we can accredit that stuff to reservation dogs um, and, you know, Rutherford Falls and such. So I think like for my experience in the very beginning when I started making films in 2017, yeah, I had no money. Like zero, I was like had a Kickstarter, GoFundMe, and then ended up paying out of pocket to make my film. Um, but I think at this point in time, like we have things like Illuminative, where they have whole cohorts of people who are being given money to craft and develop ideas, or people who are really interested in hearing Native things because of people who have come before us. So I'm really benefiting from that. People sticking in there and just like grinding for years where like people were telling them continuously like yeah there's no market for native films and we don't care so I, that is not my experience and not my reality at this point in time which I feel very blessed to again have I'm a bit beneficiary of that long hard work um but yeah I mean I think it's still a fight but I think at this point in time um it's sort of like okay just do the work now put your head down and write or Make your film and don't wait for somebody to give you permission. I think it's shifting into that sort of like we're in our own heads about like, oh, am I the right one to tell the story? Like, yes, you are the right one to tell the story. So tell the story. Thank you so much, Britt, for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode. We still have one more episode from this event for you featuring amazing Native women in comedy and TV, and we can't wait to share that with you soon. Mm-hmm. Huge thank yous to Santa Monica College and everyone there who made this possible. Thank you to the AMR team, Jonathan Stein, Max Levin, Teo Schantz, Lindsay Hightower, Darian Camarillo, and Charlie Stavish. Major shout out to KP of Black Belt Eagle Scouts for being our live music for the event and to Sierra Sana for the episode artwork. If you want to support the podcast, remember you can sign up to be a patron on Patreon, which we appreciate so much, or you can write us a review on iTunes. And also, as a quick note, Matika's book which is titled Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America, is available for pre-order and comes out on April 25th. You can buy it wherever you buy your books. Mm-hmm. what